You're listening to Legal Eagle with Marsha Chambers on WNHHLP 103.5 FM. Welcome to the Legal Eagles radio show where we explore the legal issues of the day, especially in Connecticut where we originate. We look at the criminal and civil justice system both at the state and federal level and we talk to lawyers, judges, and folks connected to law in various ways. Overall, we want to explore the impact of legal decisions and that they can make on an impact of legal decisions on our lives. Today, we are delighted to welcome back David Rosen to our WNHH radio program. David is a crusading attorney in New Haven now, a graduate of the Yale Law School who, like many, decided to set up practice right here in the city. He has taken on some of the highest profile cases in the city, dating back to the days of the Black Panthers. David had just joined us on WNHH in January before Jeff Sessions was sworn in as Attorney General of the United States. So he hasn't been here for a couple of months, uh, and we wanted to see what his views were uh, on the new administration in Washington. So let's talk about Attorney General Sessions, David, and um, what your views are on the high-profile police cases uh, for potential civil rights abuses. There are a number of them that have occurred in the past, and the Justice, Justice Department has stepped in. But now, what might happen? Thanks for having me here, uh, Marcia. It's a pleasure to be here uh, and to talk about uh, what's threatening to happen to um, the American justice system. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I'm not a fan of uh, our new Attorney General. Uh, I will tell you that uh, I was at a conference recently and happened to be talking to some lawyers from uh, from his home state of Alabama, and I asked how people saw him hmm. down there, and what they said uh, interested me. They said, "Well, we think he's hmm. actually above his uh, uh, above his pay grade. Uh, that it isn't that he's a brilliant Machiavellian figure, but that he's." Um, Whatever the opposite is, Jim uh, may be an overstatement, but that he he was never seen as um, uh, much of an intellectual powerhouse, and now here he is in this extraordinarily important role, uh, and um, he hasn't gotten off to a good start. Uh, his uh, views are only mildly moderated from what they were. Uh, a few decades ago, it seems to me, uh, and uh, he reminds us of the continuity between um, feelings about uh, law and order and uh, the inner city and um, the police departments uh, being given um, free reign uh, and um, the era of segregation uh, when uh, for example, in, if I'm not mistaken, Birmingham, Alabama, police uh, uh, put uh, fire hoses and clubs and so on on, on demonstrators uh, and thought that was an appropriate kind of response. Um, I'm concerned that uh, Attorney General Sessions uh, isn't so very far from that. Is there any way, since he is the Attorney General, and this may sound like a naive question, but sometimes whoever has the ear of the person running the department or the country has an influence. 
might that be possible in the Sessions uh, Justice Department? Is there still a strong civil rights component within that might rise up a little bit? Uh, anything's possible. Mm-hmm. Um, my understanding at the, is that the um, uh, proposed, uh, the new deputy attorney general, uh, the man named Ron Rosenstein from um, Maryland, was involved in uh, some affirmative cases mm-hmm. in Maryland uh, addressed uh, to reforming police departments, including in Baltimore. Uh, and perhaps there will be a moderating influence of some kind, but um, really, my own guess is that if there's going to be moderation, it's going to come from uh, from the public, from outside, from mm-hmm. demonstrations, from the force of public opinion, mm-hmm. uh, more than from uh, uninfluenced internal counseling. There is a case in Chicago, the police case in Chicago, and the city was negotiating a consent decree that would require independent monitoring monitoring to certify it is taking certain steps uh, to control what was happening with the cops and within the department. But Sessions has been highly critical of such consent decrees. Uh, He calls them dangerous and in run around the democratic process. Uh, What happens if there's no way to get get that going? Well, as as you and your listeners may uh, may know, some of them may know, uh, one of the um, model consent decrees uh, in the United States is the one that was um, entered by the Justice Department in the town of East Haven. Yes. Uh, and that is, in fact, seen around the country as, as a real model. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I was involved, have been involved in East Haven in uh, cases involving the police. Uh, and what I understand from people involved is that the effects of that consent decree have been extremely positive. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what is the risk is that we have identified something that really works uh, mm-hmm. in, in several dimensions and the attorney general's reaction to it is let's stop doing that. Um, and when one stops doing things that, um, uh, allow police departments to reform themselves, to be sure, with the aid of, um, of the United States Department of Justice, uh, which can be perfectly appropriate, uh, and say that um, reform, oversight, monitoring, correction of police departments uh, is inherently a bad thing, um, you just open the door to... Um, sense of lack of discipline mm-hmm. uh, and lack of uh, good police practices and you take power and influence away from people in police departments who want police departments to be the best they can be. How did it work in, in East Haven? Could you, might you, since it happened some years ago, might you remind our listeners about East Haven and what, how, how the changes occurred? Yeah, East Haven um, had... Uh, a troubled background. Um, there was a very high-profile um, police shooting uh, of a mm-hmm. uh, an unarmed man named Malik Jones back in the 90s that uh, gave rise to litigation, which I had some involvement that went on for 
for 15 years mm-hmm. um, until eventually um, the, um, the town won their appeal. Um, but in the meanwhile, East Haven's um, uh, Latino population uh, grew sub- very substantially, and that um, became a source of tension within the town. Um, the uh, Justice Department became involved. Uh, several Latino um, residents brought a lawsuit mm-hmm. uh, in which the Yale Law School uh, Worker and Immigration Rights Clinic uh, was involved, uh, and in which I was involved as well. Uh, and the town had to pay a substantial number, well into the six figures, in damages to um Residents who had been abused by the police often, or in some cases anyway, with conscious um, ethnic mm-hmm. uh, slurs and so on, making it unmistakable uh, what the motivation behind the treatment was. Um, so as that uh, private case was going ahead um, and a criminal case was being brought by the United States Attorney's Office against um some of the officers for their conduct uh, for violating the civil rights of residents uh, of East Haven. The Justice Department and the town um, negotiated a consent decree that was approved by the court mm-hmm. uh, and um, has been in place for these past years, uh, which involved monitoring by a, um, by a monitor brought in from um, monitoring, state, the poli- monitoring the police department. Monitoring the police department, exactly. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the monitor was uh, um, a former high police official mm-hmm. uh, in a different department. Uh, and as far as I know, the effects have been entirely salutary. Mm-hmm. Um, if there was grumbling, um, I wouldn't be at all surprised. But um, the town... <laughs> The town as a whole, the town leaders, uh, and the monitor, and the Justice Department, and the police department um, seem to have worked together to improve the way things are going in East Haven as between the residents and the police. Um, That was a good idea. Mm -hmm. Uh, And to say that that sort of thing uh, is inherently uh, bad for police morale or bad for communities um, is a mistake, it's, it seems to me. And it's a mistake, um, it seems to me, that comes out of um, ignorance and uh, uh, prejudgment. Right, right. And, uh, right. And the problem is that I think in some ways police departments know that there's this monitoring oversight possible by by the Justice Department. It's one of the ways in which they rein themselves in or at least are, are aware of another authority that could, right? So I'm, sure that's, I'm sure that's true just as psycho- well. Just psychologically. So I would think that, that absent that, there <laughs> might be serious issues. Yeah, sure. There, I mean, there's something that happened in East Haven. So are the people in New Haven and West Haven and North Haven uh, aware of what happened in East Haven? Sure. Uh, and is that helpful? I would guess that it is. Right. So Sessions has also just, he's taken on some other uh, issues as well, um, including gay rights. Uh, do you know anything about that for our listeners? Uh, the bathroom bill? The Yeah, the, the I, I'm not mm-hmm. 
specifically involved in that personally, but the... Um, the right to marry, same-sex couples and, and the right to marry. Yeah, well, the right to marry is now something that the Supreme Court has recognized as being constitutionally protected. Uh, and and to some extent, there's um, not much the Justice Department can do about it, um, which I'll interject reflects an enormous amount of social progress, in my view, in the United States since mm -hmm. um, the Defense of Marriage Act in the Clinton administration um, uh, enshrined or promoted or privileged um, opposite-sex marriage. Uh, so the Justice Department is limited in its room to maneuver, but it's doing what it, it can to undercut um, the rights of uh, LGBTQ uh, people, uh, including taking some stand against uh, issues about uh, transgender bathrooms, an issue that I, I have to confess my ignorance. I cannot fathom <laughs> why people um, care so intensely about it um, that it should be an issue of legislation to keep people out of bathrooms that they believe are the most important, or the appropriate, rather, um, public bathrooms it, it for, does for them the to mind. use. It does boggle uh, the mind, doesn't it? Um, I, I, I don't get it. <laughs> right. We live in an odd world these days. Um, so one of the cases that um, I covered early on in 2008 and that you were uh, very much involved with was a case that is now an education case that uh, went up to the Connecticut Supreme Court um, and then came down uh, after uh, a little quirks here and there were worked out. Uh, it's the CCJEF versus REL lawsuit, uh, which was filed uh, many years ago. Um, and now um, a Supreme Court judge issued a, a, a very long decision in the case um, and uh, Attorney General George Jefferson filed a motion to expedite uh, that appeal before the Connecticut Supreme Court um, and uh, asked for it to happen during this session. And we're still in April, and there's you know maybe a month, maybe a month and a half before this legislative session ends. Um, but the Supreme Court turned it down. The appeal won't be resolved in time for the end of the state legislative session this year. Any thoughts about that going into next year? Um, a good deal has been said about it this year. <laughs> um, it's it's always fun to um, sit in the in the peanut gallery and, oh, and yes. guess. And do, please. Oh, yeah. let, let, before we do that, I just want to tell our listeners, if you are just joining us, we are talking today to New Haven attorney David Rosen. Uh, as, I, as I said, to sit in the peanut gallery and, and guess about why... Um, Courts, for example, do things that uh, they don't write opinions about, so they don't explain uh, what happened. As you said, Marsha, is that uh, the state attorney general's office uh, wanted the uh, Connecticut Supreme Court to review a decision about the constitutionality of the state's education funding system fast. Mm -hmm. uh, and um, the Supreme Court um, turned them down and said, we'll take it up um, but not right now. Uh, and so 
you know, we can all sit and wonder about uh, <laughs> why, and everyone's entitled to his or her, her guests. Did they do it because they wanted to give the legislature uh, more of a chance to do something, or did they uh, want to do it because there were lots of briefs and papers and they wanted to uh, have a chance to consider it at full length, or... <laughs> Were they busy doing something else, or did they not want to give one case priority over another case, or what? Um, so, you know, your guess is as good as mine. Uh, my guess, mm-hmm. uh, my two cents, yeah, two cents is guess, good. Yes. is um, the court saw that the legislature is working hard on, on the issue of educational funding. Uh, as some of your listeners may know, it's being much talked about uh, in the legislature, along with uh, all the other um, burdensome financial issues that we're all facing in Connecticut. And who knows, maybe the Supreme Court said, let's let the legislature take the first crack. Mm-hmm. Um, that's one hypothesis. Maybe it's even true. Uh, but what it means is that the legislature now really does have the ball in its court. And um, as we speak today and tomorrow, uh, there are legislative proposals being, uh, being, I won't even say floated, being um, made mm-hmm. uh, about how to deal with the issue of educational funding. Um, uh, Bob Duff from Norwalk and uh, um, Representative Rojas, um, uh, or perhaps Senator Rojas, I'm sorry, I don't mm-hmm. even know, um, have um, offered one particular bill, um, setting up some structure for educational funding. Uh, and, um, I should say that I, along with the clinic at Yale law school that originally brought this case is still involved, uh, and briefs have just been filed. Um, so, so what you hear from me is coming from a, from a partisan, Mm -hmm. but, um, that said, uh, our view is that the, um, what I'll call the Duff legislation, setting out a formula and allocating funds to um, the different municipalities according to that formula, um, is good in that it's aiming to do things rather than just uh, haphazardly, town by town, but it's not so good uh, in the specifics of how it comes up with um, the numbers for each town, Uh, and um, for some of the other features. For example, it um, promotes, I think it's fair to say, charter schools by giving them uh, somewhat disproportionate funding, certainly more than they've gotten, Uh, and every dollar of the education budget that goes to a charter school comes from the public schools, uh, Mm -hmm. typically, and uh, so shifting that balance is, um, uh, we, we think it's, we think it's problematic, uh, and, um, it runs all sorts of risks. Um, you know, some of the, some of the risks can be, um, summarized by saying, you know, well, look at our new education secretary, uh, and, <laughs> and her background in education has been promoting, um, charter schools to, um, on the whole, um, not not good effect uh, in her home state of Michigan, and so it's it's a concern. Um, that said, there are charter schools that are that work 
very hard and um, in certain, in some cases very effectively, but shifting um, public dollars uh, to charter schools um, in a more, uh, I'll say extreme uh, way than they have been um, to our view is, is problematic, not good public policy. Mm-hmm. Um, and could you talk just a little bit about this because it, about towns and cities and funding uh, and how you figure out a way for towns, since I'm in Branford and I know well the whole issue of a, of a town structure with uh, school financing, uh, has, has it been a sense maybe that some towns could uh, have a that you could regionalize some towns, for example. I I don't know. I'm just raising that as a possibility with regard to a declining enrollment in many towns. Have you thought of that? Yeah. If if we were starting anew, the idea that Connecticut, um, a small, compact state, would have 160 plus school districts uh, would be a non-starter. Um, that's what we've got. And um, the forces of inertia are powerful, uh, and that is not on the table anyway. Is is something that's about to be changed. But the the problems are, among others, the kind you said. Um, school district uh, one loses uh, pupils. School district two gains pupils. Um, uh, adjoining municipalities, Bridgeport and. Um, well, virtually adjoining, say, New Canaan or, mm-hmm. or, or Darien or wherever, um, have these astounding uh, contrasts of, of wealth and resources. Uh, and as a result, what happens is, say, Darien uh, has public schools that are very well funded with students who are um, very advantaged uh, and are in some sense, the easiest uh, to educate uh, and get lots of money uh, from the town and also from the state. And Bridgeport gets much less money Mm -hmm. uh, and has uh, much, much fewer, many fewer resources uh, and is educating a population of kids who come into school already uh, burdened uh, by a whole variety of, uh, of things, including for example, a language barrier and poverty and others. Um, so is that a reasonable system? Hard to say that it is, um, but it's the one we're stuck with, and so we're now trying to uh, figure out, uh, move around as uh, money according to, to formulas that are going to, in some way, uh, provide fair allocation of resources, um, which... Um, in our view, certainly in this lawsuit, means um, resources um, particularly directed toward the communities where there's the most need, and also resources in a sufficient amount to provide uh, what is an adequate education. I should say one other thing, which is that, um, and what amount is that? Uh, mm-hmm. And our answer to that is, well, let's figure it out. Uh, let's have um, a study. Uh, there are such studies that have been done in most of the other states mm-hmm. um, the, to figure out the costs of an adequate education. Why don't we do one here uh, <laughs> and figure it out, mm-hmm. uh, which will cost 
I don't know, something like one ten thousandth or one ten thousandth of one percent, some phenomenally small fraction of the education budget uh, to get some information. Uh, and that's one of the things that our uh, client, um, CJEF, the Consent Connecticut uh, uh, Consortium for Justice and Educational Funding, which is an umbrella group, uh, is pushing for. Let's get a let's get some analysis and study of the cost of education, and then we'll know where we are, and we can go from there. Well, I would think that's long overdue, <laughs> frankly. Yeah. Well, uh, so do we. Um, and so, has there been any kind of study, not only in what you're talking about now in Connecticut, but has the clinic looked at, as the law school clinic or others, looked at how other states do it? Let's say other small states. Um, because yeah yes the answer is yes and um to say a little more about that um other states have done their own studies right uh and the studies have come up with um different requirements um for different states depending on different populations and cost of living and a variety of other factors mm-hmm. uh and um, so we think that it would be appropriate to do one for Connecticut. Um, the alternative or an alternative that's being proposed is, well, let's sort of borrow from the state or that state, and that'll be a way that we can figure it out. And we, our, our view is, well, okay, that's kind of a second best, but if we're talking about spending, um, you know, as I say, something like one ten-thousandth of, of an annual budget to do a study, why don't we actually do our own study and find out uh, a way that would take uh, Connecticut variations into account? Um, Massachusetts did its own study, mm-hmm. uh, implemented the changes in the study, uh, and um, they didn't go from worst to first, but they went from wherever they were to first, and they're now um, right next door, and they have the best public education, primary and secondary a school system in America, not just for rich kids, but for all kids. Um, is Massachusetts uh, dependent upon the property tax? Um, I think so, mm-hmm. but um, in a different in a different way. I think they have it in a slightly different percentage or something. Well, I I'm I, not sure. I, I don't I don't know the details of of right. Massachusetts formula, but it has to involve, um, and I know does involve not just relying on property tax and localities, but also, um, importantly, significantly, uh, to a large extent, relying on funds from the state that the state distributes in, in ways that um, it has figured out uh, are appropriate. Right, and some, you know, in the state of Connecticut years ago, a lot of that money was supposed to come from the gambling um, profits that were made and somehow that got diverted one night in the legislature and it was supposed to go toward education um, yeah. years ago and then it sort of had a midnight number and uh, so one of the problems that the state is facing at least I can see in my small town is we're losing a lot of people uh, the property tax is just getting too high they can't afford it many of them are seniors they leave for another state Connecticut um has not done well in in a variety of ways, um, and in terms of the the tax burden on both municipalities and on the state as a whole, um, 
one can only say, yeah, that is a problem. It's a big problem. Um, but the solution uh, often tends to be that uh, people um, sort of want to, forgive me, wall themselves off mm-hmm. from, uh, from the problems of, of neighboring communities. And that um, has not worked so well. That mm-hmm. has been Connecticut's approach to some extent and has not worked so well. Uh, and Connecticut now has very important um, statewide problems that need to be addressed on a statewide basis. Yes, that's true. Uh, to our listeners, if you are just joining us, we are talking today to Attorney David Rosen, and I think we'll move a little bit from education and um, to immigration, okay. uh, which is um, a topic that is on the minds of many. I was uh, uh, I just picked up the uh, newspaper, the USA Today, uh, and on page one, USA Today has an exclusive from its networks on immigration courts facing accretion cases. And we all know that that's happening a good deal in our courts today uh, in different ways. Um, and so I guess the question is, um, what's happening in and around courts, courts today? Uh, Dan Barrett um, of the Connecticut ACLU was on our show recently, uh, and he said that ICE is showing up at courthouses, which is very worrisome. Have you heard anything about that, how they're sort of picking up folks outside the courthouses or they're learning that people have court dates. Um, I've know only what I what I read in the papers, mm-hmm. um, but um, what I what I can add is that the um, the immigration system, and uh, particularly um, including the the um, courts aspect of the immigration system, um, has been uh, enormously overstressed for years before Mm. this latest push uh, and the notion that there's um, any any real quality of justice being administered um, is is you know it's 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 hard to hard to stand up for that one Um, one thing that tells us a lot I think is that most, most, again, I don't have the statistics, but the overwhelming majority of people who are in immigration court facing deportation are not represented. and They're not the, represented in court. They're not represented by lawyers in the... Mm-hmm. In the they go in, just, they just go in? Right. They go in and, and they lose. They all mm-hmm. lose. Mm-hmm. Um, they lose, you know, whatever the percentage is, 99. Um, some, mm-hmm. uh, some percentage that rounds off to they all lose. On the other hand, for those who do get lawyers, um, the percentage is quite different. I don't know if it's 50-50, but it's something along those lines Hmm. um, because people, this is, for example, asylum seekers, um, which is what I'm primarily talking about, uh, and um, with a lawyer and a case that's well presented um, and judges who, after all, are trying to be fair, Mm-hmm. Uh, they, um, there are good chances for people to get asylum because they deserve asylum. Um, but without lawyers, there's essentially no chance. Um, and in fact, a group hmm. of Yale Law students um, last year started a, um, uh, a program for representing um, people 
seeking asylum in courts, primarily in the in the Southwest, where most of this happens. Hmm. Uh, and when they can get a lawyer there and they can talk to the person uh, and they can make a presentation to the judge, um, the amount of fairness um, skyrockets and the amount of arbitrary, unfair deportations that inflict harm on individuals and harm on families goes way down. But we don't have that in this country. We don't have a system where um, people claiming asylum, for example, or um, we can say that they're, they're treated fairly. Um, they, they don't have a chance because they don't have, because they don't have a lawyer. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, right. And the judge doesn't assign one. Um, that doesn't work that way. Doesn't work that way. Okay. Um, uh, if you are just joining us uh, today, we are talking to attorney David Rosen. Um, let's go back to ICE for just a moment. Uh, it was kind of interesting because uh, one of the questions that I asked on a recent show uh, was how did ICE know that a particular defendant was arriving at a particular courthouse? How, how would they get that information to even physically appear outside the courthouse? And the answer was that um, uh, Connecticut has an information service called Collect. Uh, and it's an umbrella state information service, and it involves the Department of Motor Vehicles, the Department of Corrections, the courts, warrants, uh, sex and pistol registries. It's, it's a whole conglomeration of uh, names. Um, <clears throat> and it, apparently the state has made collect available on an as-need basis. So if ICE needs information, uh, the state sort of provides it. And this is at the same time that the governor, Governor Malloy, has told police chiefs and others that they don't necessarily have to cooperate uh, with ICE. Um, any thoughts about this, just legally, about how one would go about protecting that information from ICE? It- this, is, this brings up the uh, important and fraught issue of sanctuary cities and sanctuary yes. states. yes. Uh, and that was my next question. So I'm yeah. glad you got to it. <laughs> okay. Yeah. And it's not something that I know as much about as I should. Um, but, um, I, I do know that, um, what the federal government, um, is apparently planning to do, um, according to our president is to deny, um, federal funding, uh, to, um, political bodies that, uh, in, in the view of the national administration, uh, are providing quote sanctuary unquote. Uh, and there's a, a, there's a real inconsistency and, and irony in this, um, in that, um, what the federal government would have the strongest claim to be allowed to do uh, would be to cut off funds or restrict federal funds to uh, police agencies uh, that are not responding as the as the feds would wish uh, in the immigration area, um, rather than funding for any other of the many federal programs that our tax dollars go to support. Um, but my understanding is that the um, Trump administration wants to do just the opposite. Uh, wants to say we're we're going to cut off all kinds of funding for things unrelated to immigration um, detentions, 
but we're going to allow the funding to police departments uh, to continue because we like the police departments. <laughs> um, but uh, that's, uh, I think, as best I understand, it's sort of exactly backwards from what the law uh, might give the administration some some right to do that the administration might might have a claim or would have a strongest claim um, to cut off funds to um, police agencies but they don't want to do it so what they're doing um, may well to some extent be just flying in the face of uh, legal limitations um, and that'll be another lawsuit or set of lawsuits. Mm -hmm. And may I say, it may be one or several that, uh, in which uh, clinics at the Yale Law School, um, which I'm very proud to have some affiliation with, uh, will play, uh, play an important part as, as they have in uh, issues involving um, immigration thus far. Right, right. They've been, a bit, they've been in the forefront in, in some, some respects. Um, <clears throat> yeah, lots of different stuff going on in lots of different areas. Um, have you given any thought, and I'm just wondering about this out loud, about the role of the Connecticut Bar in a situation like this, in the general legal problems that uh, cities and states face, but in particular, let's say Connecticut, uh, which is dealing with the sanctuary cities issue and others. What What's the bar doing, if anything? Um, the organized bar is doing some things. Um, and, uh, for, for example, and this, you might say is an easy one, uh, when, uh, when, uh, the president referred to a judge who issued, um, an injunction against, uh, the earlier now apparently abandoned, uh, version of the, um, the policy on, uh, keeping people out of our country. Right. Um, the, the, Muslim, the Muslim ban. Yeah, the, right, Mus right. the Muslim ban. Right. Uh, the, um, the president, as you may recall, your listeners may recall, referred to the uh, judge who made the initial decision as a, quote, so-called judge, unquote. Yes. Uh, and um, the bar responded appropriately to that um, mm -hmm. with organized uh, statements of um, indignation, but not just indignation, and pointing out how grossly inappropriate um, that sort of response was. Uh, and um, there are various bar organizations that have done a variety of other things, which I, which I cannot inventory for you. Mm -hmm. but, um, uh, but they're, on behalf of the bar, which I happen to be a member of, <laughs> I would say we're working on it. You're working on it. Okay. It takes a little while sometimes. Well, yeah, or and I'm not even up on all the things that are right, being done. Right, right, right. They're getting organized. Okay. So give us an update on your firm's uh, Church Street South case. I've been interested in that, and it involves tenants suing a landlord, uh, landlord over the conditions at their residence. Okay. Um, we'd, oh. like, we'd like to know how that one's going. Okay. That's um, something that I think is, is an important legal case and raising important public issues. Church Street South, um, as many of your listeners will know, is the housing project facing the New Haven train station. Um, it's got about 300 apartments at its uh, height. It had um, close to 1,000 people living there, all on Section 8, all poor. Uh, and uh, it's become unlivable. Hmm. Uh, the, the landlord... Uh, 
who took over in 2008 um, has not done whatever needed to be done to keep it uh, as a place where people can live in decent, safe, and sanitary conditions um, for all sorts of reasons. Um, flooding is, is a lot of it. Water leaking through is a lot of it. Mm-hmm. And in fact, the um, landlord has said the buildings are, quote, obsolete, unquote, um, which is one way to put it. Uh <laughs> But what that, what that really means is that these buildings, which were uh, completed, I think, in 1970, um, are no longer really inhabitable because of the condition that they're in. Um, now, is that inevitable? Um, you know, the way, uh, whatever, the way my Apple II computer is obsolete because it's been replaced by something much better? I, I don't know if I would agree with that, but it's, it's obsolete in the sense that, it, that, that they're now unlivable. How long has it been in court? Uh, we well, there've been a couple of things. Uh-huh. New Haven Legal Assistance um, really took the lead on this, uh, and the, the lawyers there, starting um, more than a year ago, well over a year ago, um, started to bring cases. For example, in housing court, mm-hmm. uh, complaining, protesting the conditions that were going on at Church Street South, and further uh, brought. Um, complaints to HUD, complaints to the city, uh, and the city, uh, as well as HUD, but I, I tip my hat especially the city on this one, uh, was very proactive, mm-hmm. um, did inspections, condemned many, many apartments, uh, and HUD um, did inspections. They did an inspection in 2015 uh, of almost all the apartments and virtually every single one fell below HUD's minimum standards in Mm. one way or another. Could HUD have closed it down? Well, HUD's trying to close it down, but the, the, but the thing is that people live there. That's right. Um, so every apartment that's closed down is a family that needs a place to live. And, um, the way it is, is that none of them, uh, has much money. Um, all of them have been dependent on Section 8, which is a federal rent subsidy supplement. Mm-hmm. The tenants pay, um, as I understand it, um, roughly a third of their income, uh, and um, HUD supplies the rest to the landlord. So each of these families needs a place to live, and they have been finding places to live. Some of them have been very decent, safe, and sanitary, some of them not, hmm. uh, in the last um, year or more, uh, so that now there are a few families left at Church Street South, perhaps 10% of the original families, and they will be moved out, uh, or will move out soon themselves. Um, all this uh, will advance the landlord's plan to uh, basically scrape the site and put up something, um, among other things, more profitable. Mm-hmm. So is the idea essentially to take it down and start again? Yes, yes. Um, to rebuild the whole thing. Yeah, rebuild the whole thing, but not as it was. Right. Um, rebuild it with a substantial amount, as I understand it, of market rate housing and mm-hmm. some 
uh, negotiations about how much, um, subsidized housing. Uh, and whatever happens, it's apparently not going to happen that there's going to be as much housing um, for uh, low-income people uh, as, there, as there was before. Uh, and so there's going to be this net loss of housing for low-income people in, in New Haven, uh, a city mm-hmm. that's already um, short uh, right. of housing for people of, of low income or even moderate income. Right. right. It'd be interesting to hear the, well, the, the judge has to eventually, it is before the court, right? Well, we brought a, we brought a lawsuit on behalf of many uh, of the now mostly former residents of Church Street South for, um, for damages for the things that have happened, um, we say, uh, to them, including, um, but not limited to, um, physical symptoms of asthma and other things that come from living in mm-hmm. unhealthful uh, environments, um, as well as things like being, uh, made homeless, essentially, mm-hmm. uh, or having to live with a family, having to live in, uh, you know, three or four, uh, five people in a hotel room for months on end. Um, mm. and, the other things that have happened to families as a result of living in places that have been allowed to become uninhabitable. Uh, and that case is pending in court. Uh, we And the name we, of the landlord? The name of the landlord is Northland. Northland is um, a um, large uh, developer, Massachusetts-based. They've built um, not low-income or moderate-income housing, or certainly not low-income housing, but um, upscale housing. They built some upscale housing in Hartford. They uh, have a um, uh, large upscale development in Massachusetts facing one of the train stations there. Hmm. Uh, and so they sort of had on their hands um, since they purchased it in 2008 this low income housing development that they, um, uh, we allege have not done well by have not done well by at all. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, David, it looks like our time is up. Uh, it really goes fast when the topics are so interesting. I'm amazed, <laughs> and uh, it went so quickly today. Uh, we want to thank you again for uh, joining us in our New Haven studio to give us your insight into housing, government, law, immigration. Uh, we will have you back again and in a couple of months just to check in on how things are going. Uh, and thank you for being with us today and sharing your thoughts. Thanks so much, Marcia. It's my pleasure. Okay. And to our listeners, you can go to the newhavenindependent.org website to get a podcast of this broadcast and to listen to the wide variety of shows the station is producing each day. And we will write a story on this. Thank you. Thank you.